Hello and welcome to the Organic Gardening Podcast. I'm Fiona Taylor and I'm joined by my colleagues at Garden Organic, Chris Collins and Marcin Salnikov. We've come in from a slightly dreary winter's day to share our jobs for December, reflect on what the 2022 growing season gave us and look ahead to what we'll be doing next year. For this month's podcast, I had the pleasure of chatting to chef and passionate organic advocate Sophie Grigson. Sophie moved to Puglia in the south of Italy a few years ago and shares with me her experience of this change of scenery, particularly the local enthusiasm for the food that grows so well there. Later on, we'll be answering your questions on how and when to prune a wildlife-friendly native hedge, composting if you have a limited number of different components, and using up fallen apples. But before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Organic Gardening Catalogue. This month, they have a special offer for listeners of 12 Raspberry Autumn Bliss plants for just £12 at organiccatalogue.com forward slash POD9, saving a fantastic £23. That's organiccatalogue.com forward slash POD9 to claim your special offer. And now I'm off to join Chris in the potting shed. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm very good, Fiona. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well. Very well indeed. Here we are, early December. Doesn't really feel terribly wintry, does it? Although the trees have finally lost their leaves. I always think to myself, we just need a few cold snaps, you know, to put sort of keep the cycle going, to get rid of the overwintering aphids, you know, that kind of thing. Kill a few slug eggs. I know that's a terrible thing to say, but you want the numbers to be reasonable next year. And if the winter's too long and too mild, then that's not such a good thing. A couple of weeks of frost will sort it, basically. You don't want it to be this sort of wet and mild the whole time. So what have you been up to down at the allotment? Well, I've been a bit, bit carried away down there, to be honest with you, because I thought I'd re-landscape it. It's been, I think I haven't really touched it for four odd years in the system I've had it in for now. And I, I get all my wood second hand. I am a bit of a skip surfer, so I'll go around, I'll collect wood, I'll, get, I'll beg and borrow it where I can. I try not to spend any money on it. So a lot of it was quite rotten. I took it all up, so I thought, well, I'll put in new paths. We do the beds because I like I like individual beds. I split them up, maybe 12 of them on the site. Do you have wood edging around each? Wood edging with pegs, yeah. As rectangles or, tri- uh, or squares, basically. Okay, so it's not a raised bed, is it? It's just demarcating an area. Yeah, exactly. But I kind of thought I'd do it and then retain some of my crops and keep a bit of it. But like, that never happened. I completely re-landscaped the whole thing, which is typical of me because I just get carried away. I, I, I love it down there. And so it's been quite nice. And it looks amazing. It is like the perfect blueprint for an allotment. Oh, I want to see some pictures. It sounds absolutely picture perfect. All, all ready and all sorted. So tell us about your your uh, those beds we've just been talking about and, and what you tend to plant through those. Well, what I'll do is I have said on this podcast many a time, uh, my allotment wasn't touched for years. So there's a massive perennial weed problem on there that I kind of have to deal with. But the bottom is where it's really bad. So uh, I'll have my what I call my perennial crops down there. I might my pex them, which is a kind of covering I'd put over and plant through. But the rest, you're looking at beds, I would say that are 1.5 by 1.5 or 2 metres by 2 metres. And then I have pathways running between them. And that kind of makes it all more workable. If you have a full-size allotment and you don't do that, it can look rather daunting. So it's about 
segregating my growing spaces. So psychologically, I, I can kind of concentrate on each bit individually. And it really, really works. It really does. But the rest, I will rotate. So I'll start off with maybe legumes in one corner, then I'll butt them up. So I'll put in a system where I can move them around every time. It's important not to get overwhelmed, isn't it? And not to well, feel like, you just where do you start? Well, I certainly think, I'm, I'm being funny, when I first gutted the, the, the allotment over, when I took it over, you could look like you could have got a bus from one end to the other because the full size allotment is quite huge. And, and if you're thinking of getting one and you're not a massive expert on it, then share it with two or three other people, split it up. It is about um, making each area not yeah, not so daunting, basically. It, in, on your mind, it makes a big difference if you've got little bits of it that you can concentrate on each time. I mean, it, you, you talked a little bit about the rotation. I just want to revisit that for a minute because it's the kind of thing that, that puts people off because they think, oh, gosh, that's all a bit technical. You know, do, do I really need to rotate? And, and there is sort of, you know, a, a growing movement of people saying, ah, don't bother, just bung it in the ground and grow it. You're, you're a rotation man, aren't you? Yeah, I suppose in a way I may be guilty of the fact I'm, a, I'm quite a traditional horticulturist. I've been doing it for a while. Uh, so maybe I'm guilty of that. But all I'm, all I'm going to do is not grow the same crop on the same spot. That that helps with a few things. It stops any kind of club root, that kind of thing, any sort of, sort of soil-borne organisms that are likely to establish if the same crop is growing there year after year. But also it's a fertiliser thing. But there is permaculture, so you can plant multiple things in multiple layers. That's fine. I wouldn't discourage that. But I kind of go for quite a high produce allotment. And it's all about making sure that the soil is left in the best condition for the next crop, isn't it? Exactly. So you're you're working that soil. So you're you're using it as a fertilizer mean, as a way of conditioning the soil to make sure it aerates properly, make sure it drains properly. So you are just working that soil and those plants will do that job for you. And the idea of rotating is it helps you in that process. I think it sounds brilliant, actually. And I mean, I, I do do it myself. I'm not as rigid as you. I've, I've got a kind of a great big veg bed and I sort of move things around in a very sort of rough fashion. <laughs> and then if I've got a few holes, I, I bun a few flowers in. I do aspire to being a little bit more organised. But I mean, that, that of course, is, is when we're focusing on veg particularly. Of course, it's coming around to that time of year now where we're thinking about flowers and getting flowers ready for the spring. And I think somebody told me you might have already got all your bulbs in, Chris, yeah. which I'm very, <laughs> very embarrassed because I haven't got any in yet. So is it too late for me? I, I wouldn't think so. I think you could get away with putting bulbs in the ground definitely before Christmas if you can. I mean, in an ideal world, you'd get them in October, November, say November's the prime month. But I don't think you've missed the boat. I've put them in really kind of late and they've still come through. They're very resilient plants. And it's also, this is kind of their time because the best thing about doing it is, especially on my balcony, it's now given me a look forward. It's, you know that's in the pipeline when it all gets, when the dark days come right in, you go, well, that's coming. But you can still get them. You can still, yeah, you can certainly get organic ones online still. A few weeks left before that chance totally folds. Do you have a problem with squirrels digging them up on the in the pots? Well, I'm lucky. I'm about two metres away from the tree line and I see the squirrels in there and I think you better not come on this balcony. And uh, they haven't come yet and I think there's just enough distance. But if, and this has happened to me a lot, if you're having problems with that, buy some chicken wire, 
right? And then fold the chicken wire over the top of the pot, tuck it in tight, and that will protect your bulbs. Because they will, especially hyacinths, they love hyacinths for some reason. It also helps maybe if you plant a pansy or forget-me-not, a wallflower on top of your bulbs, because then you've given it some vegetative cover. And then they have that beautiful combination of spring flower off the, those plants with a bulb coming through in a tiered effect. Very beautiful. Um, we just talked a little bit about chicken wire, and, and obviously you can whip that off once the... Uh... Once the bulbs start coming through, because it's it's not the most of sightly. It doesn't, it doesn't look very beautiful. It doesn't look very good. No. <laughs> but, um, but you know, these are useful things: covering the soil, covering paths. Um, I myself have been covering my gravel paths. I've got some old shed felt off the roof, and I just roll it out. I've got I've got quite a long path down one side of the garden. And it's gravel and it just gets all sorts of seedlings in it. And I just think that's probably quite an easy way of, yeah. of getting through the winter and knowing that come the spring, flowers are out. I can take the, the, the covering off the path and, and it just sets the garden off beautifully. But, but you've been covering the soil on the allotment. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I think that um, I've I got carried away, I think. In an ideal world, I should probably landscape my allotment late February, early March, because what's happened now is I've exposed the soil. There's nothing in the allotment. And what happens is you get if you get heavy rains, damages the soil structure. It's certainly you get a problem with leaching. We've talked about that before, where the nutrient is washed through to the subsoil. So I need to kind of protect. I need to make up for my error a little bit, to be honest with you. I am now in the shops of Palmer's Green as we speak, hassling people for cardboard. So I'll put that down to protect the surface. I'll put my pex down, which is a cover I use a lot. I'll pin that down just to protect that soil until it's ready for me to start planting again. It's incredible, really, isn't it, that we, we have these methods that mean that you can not only protect soil, but you can also recycle and reuse cardboard in a, in a, in a way that actually benefits the environment, which is, which is absolutely brilliant. So it's the end of the year, so it's always worth looking back, isn't it, and thinking, OK, what did we do that went OK? What didn't go so well? Uh, what what were your triumphs of the year? Let's focus on the positive for a minute. Well, I suppose my balcony, which is south-facing in London, which is a warm city these days, that was incredible because I plant a lot of summer bedding, so a lot of colour, but I also plant my food crops on the balcony, are the Mediterranean-type plants, aubergine. I'm brilliant here for aubergine. Tomato, uh, I've had an incredible amount of chilies. I'm looking at them here now. They're all drying in bowls. and So that balcony really did well this year, and I think that was because... It enjoyed the heat. Basically, the plants I put out there liked the heat. And as long as I was out there for 10 minutes in the morning, making sure it all got the water it needed, and I picked it over and I fed it, then they all did really well. The, the allotment was a different challenge altogether, just because a lot of the temperate plants did not like that heat at all. And runner bean, which is like, kind of like cooler start, that seemed to struggle. I've, I've talked to a lot of gardeners who said the same thing. My salad crops, which I normally get loads of those, just bolted, and the spinach just bolted. When I say bolt, I mean they just wanted to set seed. They weren't interested in giving me the crop. So it was quite a challenging year on the allotment compared to the balcony. But when you came to sort of doing the work you've just done, did you, you must have had some crops you had to, to deal with there and then. I mean, if, if you were just doing that in the last few weeks. I did. Uh, yeah, I used a little trick that I learned from an old boy in Stoke. I, I did a TV series years ago, um, Britain's Best Allotment. And I went to Stoke and I asked this, and he, he, was a, he loved his parsnips and his carrots, this guy. And what he did is he got an old water barrel. And then what he'd do is in layers, he'd put sand, crop, 
sand crop. So it's a little bit like a, a homemade fridge in a way if the, te the temperatures are cool. He put that in the shed and he said he could graze those crops. So I've done that with my parsnip. I've done it with red cabbage. I've got loads of those. They're amazingly beautiful. I've got things like beets. I love my beetroot. And they're all in this barrel in layers with some, some sand and that will hopefully preserve them because my freezer here is definitely not big enough. So that's in your shed on the allotment, is it? That's in my shed, yeah, yeah. I've always wanted to do it, never managed to do it, and I knew you could do it with uh, roots in particular, but I didn't realise you could do it with cabbage. Well, I am experimenting a little bit because <laughs> I've not tried it with cabbage, but they're quite solid objects, so I will uh, I will come back to you if they survive. But then we must, we must <laughs> yeah. report back on this because it's important yeah. to know. But actually, I had a little bit of success with storage that I was, I was very proud of. So I, like you said, Said, you know the beans were a bit late and a little bit slower than than expected so actually I I didn't harvest them when they were the full pod I left them on the plant and uh, this is my climbing French bean and I harvested them only a few weeks ago and shelled them and had these beautiful white beans I mean it, the climbing French bean blue lake is was the variety but the, the bean looks like a haricot bean. I mean, mm. it's absolutely gorgeous. And I've got a jar of beans ready to make a casserole in the winter. I'm so proud of that. And actually really inspired to do more of that, growing more beans for storage in the years to come. So satisfying. That's nice to be able to dip into that in mid-February, isn't it, when you're not really thinking about beans normally? Absolutely. I'm beginning to think about next year. Have you got any big plans? Well, I'm grazing the catalogues. I kind of think between now and probably the end of January, uh, like the idea of sitting down with the organic gardening catalogue or the HSL catalogue and, and deciding what I'm going to go do next year. And I think that's quite exciting. It puts you in the mood. So I'll try some new varieties. That's all part of the fun. Although I do need some advice, Chris, because um, as you know, I put in the pond beginning of the year. It's been a huge success. Absolutely loved it. I really want to put some lovely marginals around it and, and get more more flowers yeah. in that part of the garden. So quite a shady pond. It's, it's under the trees. It looks absolutely fabulous. What would you recommend? Well, there's some beautiful plants to use. A big favourite of mine, Rod Gersia. You can grow them in a different kind of environments, but they're in a basis. There's one called Asculifolia, which has this amazing horse chestnut-like leaves with these big plumes of white flower. Plant them in drifts, Fiona, so never in ones. Plant them in threes and fives, so you get that kind of natural drift. Penstamens, they're brilliant uh, pond-side plant. Obviously, hostas, if you kind of give them a little bit of shade. I quite like the idea of amelanchias, multi-stemmed amelanchias, underplanted with these plants. So you get this dappled shade and then you get these drifts of quite beautiful looking herbaceous plants that light their feet down. A stillbees is another brilliant plant for a pond side. If you want something to give you a big bit of height, I like to undulate my planting. Uh, Rebecca's and they will flower. Absolutely That's nonstop. amazing. I never thought of, of Rebecca's by the pond because they strike me as such a hot flower, you know. They love it next to a pond and you get so many varieties of them. And you, we associate them with herbaceous borders and that's where you get that impression of heat, etc. But they will sit with their feet in moist soil quite, quite happily and then give you a bit of height and then obviously flower non-stop. I wonder if there's any edibles I should be thinking about as part of my marginals. Well, I wonder, quite a lot of stuff, if you put it in the back a little bit, maybe think about perennials like Jerusalem artichoke, stuff like that. You might be able to put them near ponds because they're quite resilient as well. Okay. I'm going to have lots of fun. I will report back and let you know how I get on, but I better I better crack on and find out where I can get hold of some of those plants. I, I mean, I guess I will have to buy those in. I don't think I can grow any of those from seed, can I? 
Well, you might be. Rebecca, you could grow from seed, or they are a bit touchy. That's a good challenge, isn't it? Because if you get yes. one on the go, yeah, that's fine. But maybe hedge your bets and, and buy one in as well. I won't name names, but if you can grow to a basis temperate grower that's in the UK, there are plenty of them, and they'll grow stuff, and you have an advantage then because they'll already be acclimatised. If you're buying something from Italy or wherever that's coming in, or Holland, it's been grown in a different environment. Whereas if you're buying off a British grower in this country who's exposing it to British conditions, you'll get a better plant. And I will go and do my research because there's a lot of organic nurseries that really need our support and, and I, I really want to go and spend my money there. That's what I'll do. Try and avoid your DIYs and go to a local grower would be my advice for a bit of sustainability. And also a good place to go if you want to buy somebody a Christmas present. What's on your Christmas list, Chris? Well, I'm going to, if I can, give out bare root trees. and That's a, that's the best gift of all. I was in Edinburgh last week talking to uh, apprentices. I put up this slide at the beginning of the first tree I had applied, which is enormous Augusta folio, like a, a, an elm, a Cornish elm. And that elm will live 600 years, long after I'm not about. In such a temporary transitional world, I think that's quite a special gift. It certainly is. Well, my absolute hope is that people will give me terracotta pots because I am trying to switch out plastic. I think the plants definitely do better. The oxygen exchange is better for the roots. Um, They don't sort of gather the water in the bottom of the pots. And I'm also keen to transfer my houseplants over to terracotta as well because they're not doing so well. And I I think that's probably key to encouraging them to do a bit better. Yeah, all roots need oxygen. It's it's interesting because you, you remember when it comes to plants, you talk about plants need carbon dioxide and that's about actually roots need oxygen. So the thing about terracotta is it's porous. So you will get that exchange and that will certainly the house plants that will definitely help. Well, I hope you do get everything for Christmas that you want, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> if, I get, if I get roast dinner, I'll be happy with that, Fiona, to be honest with you. <laughs> with your parsnips and carrots. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. From my, but I'll, I'll, I'll report back on the, on the red cabbage when I dig it out for Christmas Day. I'm really looking forward to that. That's going to brighten up our January podcast. We'll look forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> Our special guest this month is longtime supporter of Garden Organic, chef and food writer Sophie Grigson, an enthusiastic advocate of organic food. Sophie's written over 20 cookbooks and has always been particularly passionate about vegetables. Now residing in Italy, Sophie has set about discovering more vegetables, including a broccoli-like one called Cima di Rapa, which she urges us all to grow, 60 local varieties of cherry tomato in her region of Italy alone, and the joy of eating slices of cucumelon alongside pasta. During the interview, we discuss a couple of recipes, and we'll be giving you more information on those later in the show. I thoroughly enjoyed getting to know Sophie a little more when she joined me on a slightly ropey internet connection from the southernmost region of Italy. Sophie, thank you so much for agreeing to come and talk to us here at Garden Organic. It's a pleasure. You, I mean, you have written a lot about vegetables over the years. And going back 20 or so years, a book called Organic, A New Way of Eating. It's interesting now to think that perhaps it's not so new, is it? But can you just talk a little bit about what caught your interest with the organic movement, you know, way back then? I think at the time, I just had my children, so I had young children. And I think that that from for many people, I think you know, when you're a new parent, you're suddenly much more aware of what your food is, where it comes from, what's in it. 
and you want to give your children, but particularly when they're very young, um, you want to give them something that is nutritionally the best that doesn't contain things that you don't understand. <laughs> Um, all those say, chemicals. And so for me, the organic movement just made a lot of sense, really. Kind of as simple as that. And I want to explore more about what the organic movement is doing and what organic growing of fruit and veg in particular, what it's about and, and where it's come from. And so it was a, it was, um, it was a really interesting time in, in my life. And it was a very exciting period, I think, for the organic movement then because it was beginning to flourish in a way that it hadn't before. And a huge amount of support at the time from King Charles. Yeah, um, absolutely. I would, he was extraordinary when you think about it, to have picked up and espoused the whole um, organic way of growing way before it was fashionable. And I have huge praise for him for, for doing that. So yes, the organic movement, it felt like it was just really beginning to blossom. It's very interesting that you say that children, having children made you, made you sort of think about, you know, maybe looking at the labels a bit more closely and, and, you know, making those, those choices for, for organic. And we hear that a lot. And the other time we hear that people start to think uh, carefully about organic practice is if, if they're growing some of their own fruit and veg and suddenly they think, well, hang on a minute. I don't, I don't want to spray this. Crikey. I'm going to be eating it. And it's almost like, there's those two points where the penny really drops quite often. What then happens is people then think, oh, okay, hang on a minute. Well, if I'm not going to spray my raspberries, then why would I spray my roses? And and then it, it sort of builds from there. But it's really interesting. You you now live in Italy and, and I'm talking to you across the ether between um, Wrighton Gardens and Puglia, right at the south of Italy. Do you want to tell us a little bit about, about where you live right now? Yes, I live in, I live in Italy's Hill, Puglia. Uh, I live in the middle of it and it's beautiful. It's very beautiful. Uh, I moved here about three and a half years ago and I just love it. It's still got a lot of very old fashioned values, but it's an area where fruit and vegetables in particular grow with abundance. Quality of fruit and veg down here is fantastic. Um, and people eat a lot of, uh, of, of green. And it must have been the, the food culture, really, that, you know, must have intrigued you at the first instance. Totally, totally. When I first arrived, I thought that I knew quite a lot about Italian cooking. And it turns out that what I knew about was really more northern. Coming down here, you, you made, it made me realise, it really brought home to me how regional Italian cooking is. And you're never more than 10 minutes away from a pizzeria here. <laughs> <laughs> there are lots of pizzerias. But... Italian food is very regional, and Puglia is very proud of its its homegrown dishes, very proud of its produce, very proud of its olive oil. It comes the Puglian cuisine comes out of intense poverty. I mean, really, up until until the First World War, and probably later, probably up to the Second World War, it was. I mean, really shockingly, shockingly poor. So the cooking is very much about making the most of what you've got. It's about fruit and veg, which you could grow yourself. Um, it's about, you know, lots of beans and pulses, which are very cheap and nutritious and filling. It wasn't pasta country. It, this was bread. Bread was the main kind of stomach filler here. I mean, now everybody eats pasta all the time. On the coast, fish as well. Um, but it is curious. You see, I live 20 minutes drive from the coast and I'm in meat territory. This is inland. 
That is so interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So actually, fish really, you've got to be able to see the sea if you want to yeah. get your fresh fish. So going back to that sort of cultural um, heritage of, uh, you know, as you say, extreme poverty, the, the key, of course, has been that people were cooking what they could get their hands on. But, but there doesn't seem to be any compromise on flavour, particularly in that part of the world. No, foodies don't much do bland. They can cope a lot out of something very simple. I mean, one of the things I learned very early on was that cherry tomatoes are for cooking with. They're not a salad tomato here. Oh, how interesting. Which is very interesting. And they use them quite judiciously. You get recipes where four people, where there will be 12 cherry tomatoes in it. Is this a mistake? Um, that's not enough. But they use them as a seasoning. So it's it, it'll be to accent for a little bit of acidity, a little bit of background, for it. just enough highlight other flavours. So it's a very clever way of cooking. It's not just about chuck a whole lot in. It's it's something that's involved gradually to make the most of a small amount. There's also here a variety of tomatoes, large cherry tomatoes, that keep through the winter. Ah, so you can store them. Yeah, and they're not dried. They are strung up in bunches. They look beautiful. Um, and they last through February or March, just hung up. It's and you just pluck off when, when yeah. as you need. yeah. yeah. And they still, they t- they seem fleshy. They don't. Yeah, they don't. absolutely, absolutely fleshy. They tend to be not as sweet, and they have slightly thicker skins. But yes, it's they they last all the way through the winter. We have an awful lot of tomatoes in our heritage seed library here. Glad um, to hear that. And so people are very fascinated by tomatoes amongst our members. I know myself, I mean, I, I grew four different types this year that I'd never grown. But of course, I just sort of feel like they must just be sort of everywhere where you are. I mean, tomatoes just must yeah. be in such abundance. Yes, everywhere. I mean, I, I, I went to um, a tomato tasting recently, my a local organic grower. And he had 15 varieties of tomatoes there, most of them cherry tomatoes. He is saying to me he thinks about, there are about 60 different varieties of cherry tomatoes grown in Puglia alone. 60? Um, six zero? Six zero, yes. Six, Good six, grief. And going to a tomato tasting a thing, generally, in, in, in Puglia? Well, I don't think particularly, but they are. <laughs> one of the things I love here, they're so proud of their local bodies and what they grow here, of Puglian cooking of their own culture. Uh, I mean, sometimes it can be a bit frustrating to try and bring something else in from outside and make foreign food. But I do love this passion for their own produce. A lovely little corner cafe, which is tiny, and it's uh, very much a workman's cafe. does very good coffee. Now, sometimes I sit there and I'll be listening to the to the guys, and they'll be discussing food. Um, but they will be discussing how you should make one particular dish in a way that I would never... You'd never hear the same thing in the UK. They all have an opinion about whether you should put this in, whether you should put the other in. It's great. Isn't that interesting that mm-hmm. actually yeah. that cooking is so much a way of life that people are just sitting in bars chatting about it? I think I think that's fascinating. So paint us a picture of the of the sort of landscape around you and uh, what is growing, what you see growing. There are olive trees everywhere. It's the colour of the country, so that silver grey is the dominant colour out of the country. But there are also, there's a lot of almond trees, a lot of almond trees growing, apricots, cherries, cherry trees, and cherries are massive down here. So you see all kinds of fruit trees. Further north, there's not so much wheat down here. Further north in Puglia, there's wheat. Around me, there's also kind of market gardens, people growing, tomatoes, chilies, a lot of chilies growing as well. It's very green. I mean, in the, in the mid, in the height of summer, it becomes brown. People are quite surprised by how green it is here. 
And I think that's partly because we are we're surrounded by sea. So there's, we've got the Adriatic on one side, we've got the Ionian on the other. So we have quite a, a moist climate. So curiously, there are no rivers. Well, that's not totally true. There are no visible rivers. Water goes flows underground. Which, of so, course, must affect the water table, which then in turn will affect the soil and, in, and affect the growing conditions. So that's really interesting. It's, um, so do people garden it? Are there people, do people have gardens? Is it a thing? Oh, it's, it's very much a thing. They, they, local people tend to, to have a town place, to live in town, and to have a piece of land where you spend a lot of time in the summer. They have their gardens. They're not necessarily attached to the house. So it's almost like a sort of summer allotment that you would go yeah. to. Yes, exactly. It's that kind of thing. And from there, people will grow all kinds of uh, fruit and veg. And it's also where they retreat to in the summer heat. And the whole family will go there and have a, a great shindig. They're also, the other thing they, they are very, very keen on here is foraging. They are massive foragers. Here. I was going to ask you about that. That's interesting. Okay, it, tell us more. What would you forage for? Well, the, when I first became aware of foraging, well, Curiously enough, during our first lockdown of COVID, I moved here about nine months before COVID. And curiously, that is the time when wild asparagus was growing in the fields. I, I was quite impressed by how law-abiding the Italians were. However, we were allowed out for import for you know, necessary outings for shopping. And, things like that. and I think the Italians consider picking wild asparagus a thing of necessity. And so, wild asparagus, are, are they quite a lot thinner? Is that right? I'm trying to visualise. It's very different in, 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 in look to, to garden asparagus. So they're very thin, really delicious. People occasionally are handing me, handing me a bag that was full of wild asparagus that they've just been out picking. I know when uh, my, my downstairs neighbour has a very nice campagna, they go out and pick wild rocket. Um, they forage for all kinds of things. Um, wild green, greens, bitter greens. The Pugliese are known, I think, rather disparagingly as mangiafoglie, leaf eaters. And they eat phenomenal amounts of green leafy vegetables. They just love green leafy vegetables. And the one that uh, they eat the most of is Chima di Rapa, which if you don't grow it, grow some. Grow some so, so what is it? Now, you're going to have to give us a bit more information here. So what actually is this it's, mysterious green leaf? It's often translated, the name is often translated into English uh, as turnip tops. And that is very stupid and very confusing because they are not green bits at the top of turnip. And anyway, who knows what turnip tops means in the UK anyway. So I think look for something called either Chima di Rapa or Rapini. And being Italy, there are about a million different names for it. It's sort of like a bit similar to purple sprouting broccoli. They have the little florets, but much more green leaf. And it's got a very slight bitterness, which is a, a, a flavour that the Pugliese love. They love hints of bitterness in food. Fantastic. What an interesting um, vegetable. We've now learned a whole new vegetable. I'm, I'm excited yep. to hear about that. That's amazing. Um, you you have, a, have a little balcony as well, I think. Is that yeah. right? I have a very nice little house in the middle of town with a balcony. So I've got a few things like that. But I have lots of friends out in the countryside. So I can go and get my countryside fix, enjoy the olive oil. And I don't have to do any of the work. You've got it made, I think, probably. Yeah. Tell us what you do do on your balcony. Um, I have basil, which is still just about going. It's getting colder here now. So I might harvest it all uh, and freeze, make some pesto or basil puree and freeze that. 
Um, I have mint. I usually have thyme and sage. I've got sage. Um, I've got lemongrass. Which That's beautiful. very interesting that you would get, do well with lemongrass. But I, I mean, that must go back to what we were saying before about the, the greenery and, and how much actually, how much sort of humidity there is around. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And it loves it. I mean, it, it's very happy here. Now, you um, have just made this TV series that's been airing on the Food Network called Slice of Italy. Uh, it, it looks like terrific fun, I have to say. It is an odd thing, really, for a foreigner to come in and to cook Italian food. People pitched in with enormous enthusiasm. I think they kind of take it for granted that other people ought to enjoy it and ought to be interested in it as well. We, we um, imagine, of course, lots of pasta, lots of pizza, which I think is uh, probably a, a fair enough thing to, to imagine. But are there any, any other surprises that sort of appear on the table when you, when you sit down to, to eat? Oh, yes. Uh, yes. Antipasti. Uh, mixed antipasti is where you find the really interesting things a lot of the time. There are, actually, there are quite a lot of vegetables that I've not come across before. So one of the things, when I first arrived here, I noticed these sort of little round, uh, size of a, a large orange, and green melony things. I didn't know what they were. And eventually I asked, and they said, oh, yeah, that's a barattiere. And there's another version, very similar, called uh, carosella. And these are cucumber melons. And, but they're eaten alongside pasta. So it sort of cuts through it, cuts through the, the glutinous yes. or, yes. Yes, so the sort of richness or the, the, the farinaceous nature of, of pasta. Um, and they're just eaten, they're, they're just peeled and sliced and they're put in a bowl in the middle of the table. People just grab a piece and eat it alongside the pasta dish. So that's very, very common down here. So I hadn't come across that at all. They grow very easily. That was totally new to me. Um, and this tradition of having something sort of fresh and seasonal as you're eating. Yes, absolutely. So you might have sticks of celery on the table. You might have very crisp lettuce. There's there's something green and refreshing, which tends to be not not served as a salad as we might. So it's not dressed. It's just put there and you just grab a piece and eat it alongside your, your pasta. So that was quite a surprise. The, other things that I um, found here, there are, there are very long snake beans. Um, so green, sort of like a green French bean, but, but really like long. Green, yeah, like a green French bean, but long. So they're about as long as your, as long as your arm. But um, not, not, not in the runner bean league, sort of more in the French bean league. Oh, much more French bean, French bean style. Yeah, absolutely. So they're cooked, they're often cooked with pasta. The guy in the, the market saw where I said, oh, you have to cook them with the spaghetti. Not with other kinds of pasta, but it works very well. So I chucked them in, uh, in, the, in the pan with the pasta. And they also, the other thing they have a lot of here, and I guess this comes out of tense poverty, so much so that people were, a lot of people were day labourers, that you know their main meal would be a big slice of bread with maybe an onion. And so bread is a, is a big main thing. Lots of recipes with bread in it because no bit of bread is ever allowed to go to waste. A lot of dishes with vegetables in it. A lot of pasta dishes with pulses in them. So there's some carb-on-carb thing is quite common here. So you get a lot of pasta and chickpea recipes, pasta with um, cooked with lentils and so forth, some lentil-y sludge. Uh, and it, 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 and it, it does look like sludge, but it tastes terrific. So a lot of pulses grown here as well. And ones which I hadn't come across before, like black chickpeas. Black chickpeas. I've never heard... Of that, and so that's a really 
good one on me. I mean, I, um, I'm delighted to say that next year I plan to grow my own chickpeas because I have learned how to do that being here at Garden Organic because we grow them here. Uh, and so I'm, I'm really thrilled to, to try and grow some of my own next year. But black chickpeas, I think I need to do some further research. Do some further research. They are very nice. They're, they they kind of those taste. <laughs> and bolotti beans, of course, you know, picked fresh and all those sorts of things, oh, not it, you know. Yes. You, I mean, you have written a lot about vegetables over the years and, you know, you must be now sort of in seventh heaven, really, with, with so much abundance around you. Oh, yes. Yes, totally. Yes, I know. I, I think vegetables are so much more interesting to cook with than meat. And my my second book was, was called Eat Your Greens. So Not- I remember that with you looking very stern on the front cover. Eat your greens. Eat your greens, yes. So the, the vegetables are so interesting. I mean, you know, the different textures, huge range of textures, huge range of flavours, lots of different colours, the shapes are so interesting, so beautiful. And there's just so much potential and you can do so many interesting things with vegetables vegetables just you know it, it's an endless world of possibilities when you think of a vegetable like an aubergine which adapts to you know if it's cooked well take on the veg spices and the flavors that you put into it stuffed and love stuffing but also maybe thinly slivered and fried they also do a carpaccio. Sometimes I've eaten a carpaccio of um, aubergine, which is just a fancy way of saying very, very thinly sliced and eaten raw. Cut in olive oil and maybe lemon juice, salt and pepper. It's actually very, very good. Surprisingly good. It's interesting, isn't it, that, that the vegetables now are having such a moment, really, in the sun. You know, perhaps when you first started writing about it, you know, perhaps it wasn't so. Is that right? Yes, no, absolutely. And things have changed. Of course, the British have always been a nation of gardeners. I mean, you look at the allotments, garden organic. We have always grown vegetables, not always quite so good on cooking. I think that's a really fair observation, isn't it? I think hmm. I think that we are passionate growers, and 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 you know our temperate climate really lends itself to that. We can grow almost you know almost anything really in this country, or at least an enormous variety of things. Hmm. But, you know, so you had your, your prize cabbage and then you would just boil it. It's a shame, really. Not so now, I think. And we, we know we have a lot of people and chefs as well, you know, interested in the Heritage Seed Library and these different types of vegetables and, you know, unusual, um, different flavours. It really is another dimension that the whole heritage variety is, is another whole dimension um, to, to vegetable growing because, of course, they look so appealing as well because they look different. You know, I, I grew a beautiful yellow tomato this year, an Estonian cherry yellow, I think we called it. Absolutely beautiful, sort of teardrop shaped, totally delicious, but also incredibly appealing because it looked so different. Because one of the key ingredients to any kind of vegetable cooking is olive oil. And I, I would just love to hear your perspectives a little bit on, on the olive tree and, and, and how that must sort of um, inform your landscape. Puglia is defined by olive trees. Until very recently, um, Puglia produced over 40% of Italy's total olive oil production. Um, um, 40%. Yeah, so oh. the, the landscape is just covered. Uh, there are just olive trees everywhere. You know, it's such a strong part of the local culture. And it, as Ampulia's coat of arms has an olive tree in the middle of it. It's so ingrained in people's way of life, actually. It's, uh, it's more than just a tree that produces 
fruit that produced lots of olive oil. And the ancient trees, you know, the fact they, they live for hundreds of years and... Um... No, 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 thousands of years. We have tree ships that go back 2,000, 3,000 years, which is extraordinary. To stand under one of those trees and, you know, some Roman peasants, they stood here. Just like me, they stood under this tree, took a break from the heat of the summer heat. I mean, it was an extraordinary thing. I think it, we should just touch on yeah. the, the terrible xylella disease that seems to be affecting, you know, large numbers of, of trees in, in Puglia. And that, that's a massive issue, surely. It's a tragedy. One of the problems is it's a monoculture and a big one. So there's this disease called Xylella that arrived probably about 10 years ago, 12 years ago, and it is devastating olive trees and it's spreading up the year. It's a, it, um, a bacteria that's carried by insects and you go, you drive south and it's like driving through a war zone. It's like some terrible bomb has gone off and killed which is you see these kind of ghost trees, grey, I think it's the once, once vigorous olive trees very recently. I kind of feel, I, I, I don't know, I look on in despair it, it's going to change Puglia but this is a disease that is not just going to affect Puglia. It's going to go all the way around the Mediterranean. It affects bay trees as well, and mm. um, and I know that there is a uh, an enormous sort of international effort actually to stop the transport of of the disease. You know, the other interesting thing you mention is, of course, you get a region that's famous for a particular crop, and then of course there's hundreds or thousands and thousands of them, which then means that there isn't that diversity and there there isn't that kind of that wonderful kind of organic cycle of nature sort of being able to heal its own. So, yes, there's a lot of big issues, you know, behind that bottle of olive oil um, that, that, we, that we buy. And olives are a fruit, of course. It seems, seems strange because we sort of think of them in, in a kind of savoury way. And I think you very kindly dug out a recipe to, to share with us. And since this is a sort of wintry uh, podcast, it's, it's a, quite a hearty, nice um, recipe. I just wonder if you could just talk us through that one. Um, I think you might be talking about the chocolate olive oil mousse. And indeed I am. Ooh, which is a very gorgeous thing indeed. Chocolate mousse. And it has olive oil mixed in. Now, you might say, why bother? The chocolate mousse is gorgeous anyway. Well, this is just even more gorgeous chocolate mousse. And it gives it a silkiness and a richness, which is hard to define. You wouldn't eat it and think, oh, that's wonderful. I tried it on people here, and they thought it was a very odd concept until they tasted it, at which point they forgot about it being odd and, and just ate the whole lot. That was it. We will make sure that we post the recipe on our website so people can find it and another recipe you've given us contains this mystery but rather marvelous vegetable the chima de rapa if i got that right yeah and that's a i think it's a pasta recipe yes it is it is i would say it is the iconic bullion recipe bullion dish in my in my little town here today i bet you there's about one in three people will be eating orecchietti and a chima de rapa so orecchietti has a little ear-shaped pasta, and the chima di rapa are cooked in the same saucepan. You have to forget any concept of al dente of the vegetables. Al dente of the pasta, yes, but vegetable, the, the, the chima di rapa has to begin to break down. You put it in the same water, and then it's just finished with chili, garlic, and anchovy fried in olive oil. And that's it. It's, it's, it's such a simple dish. 
You can do it with um, purple sprouts and broccoli, but best of all is to encourage, is to grow your own Shimediapa as well, organically, obviously, and you will be delighted. I'm going to find out about it. I am. I'm going to find out about it and see if I can grow it <laughs> and report back. Um, so I would conclude, Sophie, that life is good for you in Puglia. You know, what an amazing sort of growing, cooking um, community you, you've arrived into. Life is very good here in Puglia. It's a pleasure to live here. I go out in the morning, I, I go to the market, or I go to a vegetable, fruit and vegetable, and I just, yeah, I count my blessings. It's the best decision I've ever made, moving to Puglia. Sophie Griegson there, talking to us from Puglia. Now, let me just walk you through the recipes that she talked about. First is pasta with chimi di rapa, or purple sprouting broccoli. So, the ingredient list is as follows. 300 grams of dried orecchietti, which is the local pasta, but this can be substituted with pasta shells. 800 grams of purple sprouting broccoli, or if you can get hold of it, chimi di rapa, three cloves of garlic, two chilies, six tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil, five anchovies and some salt. Prepare the broccoli by trimming off the tougher stalks, then chopping the rest, including the leaves, into pieces around three to four centimetres long. Cook the pasta and the broccoli together in a pan of boiling water with a dash of salt. Whilst that's cooking, put the oil, chilies, garlic and anchovies into a frying pan. Fry gently for a few minutes until the garlic is brown, but don't let it burn. Scoop out a cup of the pasta and broccoli water and reserve that. When it's ready, you drain the pasta and the broccoli and then you add that to the frying pan. You toss it with the mixture in the pan and you loosen it all up with a slurp or two of the pasta water. Eat straight away. The second recipe is the olive oil chocolate mousse. You need 100 grams of dark chocolate, finely chopped, two egg yolks, 80 grams of light muscovado sugar, a pinch of salt, four tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil and three egg whites. First of all, melt the chocolate and then you just leave that to cool for a few minutes. Whisk the egg yolks and the sugar until the sugar has dissolved. Then add the olive oil a little at a time until you create a gorgeous thick gloop. Then you whisk in the melted chocolate a little at a time. Don't panic if the gloop shows ominous signs of graining at this point, just carry on. Whisk the egg whites separately into soft peaks and fold into the chocolate mixture. Divide this between four small cups or bowls and chill for a few hours. Then just before serving, drip a few drops of fresh olive oil over each mousse and sprinkle with a few flakes of salt. I'm certainly intending to try those recipes and I hope you do too. Just let us know how you get on. And now it's time for the post bag. We've got some cracking questions this time. Um, and I'm joined by our Head of Horticulture, Chris Collins. Hi, Fiona. And I'm also joined by Martin Sarnikoff, who is our Lead Horticulturalist for the Heritage Seed Library. Hi, Martin. Hello. Right, we have got a really, really interesting question about hedging. It's from Sally, and she says she has a wildlife hedge with a mix of native trees, hedge plants, such as Gelder Rose, Hawthorn, Blackthorn, Beech hazel, wild roses, wild privet, holly and so forth. She's never really known the best time to prune it and she's got quite a thick hedge now but she wants to see more flowers and berries and wants to know how and when to cut it 
in order to achieve this. So start us off then, Martin, on this one. Hi, yeah. I think the, the indication of, of the problem is in, in the question here. So Sally would like to see more flowers and berries in the hedge. So that would suggest to me that the wood isn't mature enough. Uh, what I mean by that is in order to have flowers and berries, the, the wood on the second and third year. If you keep cutting the first year, the, the fresh wood, then you're not going to have any flowers. So I think I would leave it alone for, for a few months at least. If there is a, a, an option for leaving the hedge or at least one side of it for a whole season, I would leave one side untouched and see what it, what it does. What would be the best time of year to leave it for the birds? I think the suggestion from uh, RSPB, between March and August, you shouldn't touch your hedges. That's the main nesting seasons. If you really have to control your hedge, between March and August, I would only use secateurs or, or hand shears and do a, a delicate pruning. I suppose the secret is to think of it as lots of different plants, not just one kind of amorphous hedge that that you might just treat like privet. And, you know, we've all seen it, haven't we, where... Here's a hedge that's absolutely stuffed full of of native species, but it's just been cut to within an inch of its life. And so it's just this kind of green mast. But it sounds to me like less is more with this. You need to cut less if you want more flowers and berries. I think from the mixture, you will have many different rate of growths on it. If you have to cut it, and again, it comes down to aesthetics. If you have to cut it, just be gentle with it and, and go in September or, or after that, once the birds left. What sort of advice have you got, Chris, on this one? Yeah, I can't agree with that. I think little and often native hedge, you don't really want to interfere with what it's doing. It's going to be its most um, prosperous and the most beneficial in its most natural form. And that cuts us out to a certain degree, doesn't it? But I kind of understand in a small garden, which is what most of us have. I mean, you can even do it in pots along in front of a balcony rail if you wanted to. But that means you need to kind of contain its size. So rather than going in heavy, sack of tears, just tip out the, the shoots at the top, keep it nice and tight, let it thicken out. Don't go too mad on it. Also, we've kind of changed from the days where we went out with a, with a hedge trimmer and hit a privet back and it all looked perfect around the, the house. And now we're trying to accommodate nature a lot more. So it, definitely the rule is, is try not to interfere with it as much as you can but if you need to little and often okay well we've got a question here from Catherine and Catherine is interested in building some compost heaps uh, the materials mostly available to her are grass cuttings and leaves but there'll also be some twigs from shrub pruning which she's hoping to chip up before she puts them in her compost so she's curious should she be separating out all these different materials would that be beneficial what, what would be your recommendation? So I'm going to come to you first, Martin, on this. I think it's, there's no right and wrong with this one. You could mix them or you can keep them separately. I think having only three elements to it is, is quite tricky. You, you need the right balance of browns and, and greens. It's uh, uh, nitrogen and carbon that we, we want to have in equal parts, more or less. Ideally, with, with the right mix, you, you hit the best rate of composting. So you may end up with the compost within six to 12 months. Obviously, if you only have grass clippings, they're not going to do much as well. They'll, they'll just turn into a um, slimy mess. So if you can supplement your, your grass clippings with, with, with cardboard or brown paper or some dried stems. With leaves, the, the trouble is they go through different processes of composting. So they're mainly fungal activity. So it's going to be a cooler activity and it's going to take longer. That usually takes about 12 to 24 months. Uh, depending on the on the lignin content in leaves, but then you end up with a leaf mold, which is a, a lovely additive to your and to your growing medium, a lovely open structure. 
And she's spot on with with cutting up the twigs, isn't she, to try and keep keep that carbon, that brown material, um, a bit smaller, so that it so that it mixes in nicely and 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 aerates with the grass clippings. I mean, Chris, you're somebody who has composted many, many, many tons of grass clippings over the years. Well, I, I tend to use them as an accelerant. So yeah, I mean, I've, I've had grounds I've looked after. I've got acres of grass, and that's a lot of clippings. So if, as uh, Martin says, if I just put grass clippings in, it just becomes a sludge. So I would put in my weeds, my cardboard, my paper, and my allotment. I tend to do that with shredded paper and mix it together. And the, and the grass tends to act as an accelerant because it heats up much quicker. I would definitely separate out the leaves because there just there's a different process involved. If I was to miniaturise it, I'll have three bays on my allotment. Two will be for composting where I mix my browns and my greens together. Then I'll have a, one with chicken wire on it and that will be for my leaves. If I can just add one more thing to the, to the grass clippings, what I've done personally in my garden, and if you've got too much of it, you don't want to add all of it to the compost. We've used it as a, as a mulch as well. So you can sprinkle it around your, your shrubs or your plants just to conserve some water and, and suppress some weeds. It works really well. Obviously, you don't want to overdo it. But I think a couple of sprinklings, a couple of layers will do the trick. Excellent. Plenty of good advice there. Our last question is from John, who says, we have a large number of fallen apples. Can we chop them up and then use them scattered on the ground, covered with black weed suppressant plastic? Could we mix them with manure? Would that be suitable then across the top of the ground? Big question. Thanks, John. Let's see uh, what the answers are. Martin. Yeah, I think... Uh, many people have that problem with, with a lot of apples coming off the trees. Um, it's a tricky question. The problem is with covering with uh, plastic or anything around the tree, it will attract rodents underneath the, the suppressant plastic. I would also check the health of your tree uh, and of your apples. Uh, may be harbouring brown rot or botrytis. And so uh, apples are susceptible to quite a lot of fungal problems. If you've got quite a lot of it and the winter's quite mild, they'll just overwinter on the ground and then reinfect your tree. So maybe from that perspective, it's probably not the best idea. Okay, thank you. Wise words there. So, Chris, what would your advice be? Well, I think if you're going to go to the trouble to cut the apples up and, uh, and reduce the size of it, so I would probably go straight in the compost bin. That would make more sense to me than rather than just covering them over with some form of, uh, of plastic mulch. On the other hand, you know that these, nothing gets wasted in nature. So you can put your apples in a little pile and let the, uh, the slugs and the, the birds and everybody feed on them. Or maybe this is probably my favourite answer is give them out, make them communal, make some cider. Or chat to your neighbours, find a way to eat them. It's frustrating how you see every year all these apples lying on the floor that no one seems to care about, that they're like, they're just wasted. And I know that most people are a bit nervous about eating anything that doesn't come in cling film or from a supermarket, but this is free food and it will taste better. Try not to waste them. And what is better than hot apple cider around this time of year? It's such a wonderful winter drink. So, yes, what a great idea. Yes, that's warmed me up even thinking about it. Thank you, Chris. All right. Well, that's all we've got time for in the post bag. Thanks ever so much to both of you. See you next time. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. See you soon. Before we sign off for another year and Chris disappears into his shed to unearth his Christmas cabbage, I just wanted to say a heartfelt thank you to you for listening and for supporting our charity, Garden Organic, through 2022. We believe passionately that organic growing is the best way to tend to our gardens, allotments and green spaces so we can protect our precious biodiversity and all the riches nature has given us. If listening to this podcast has prompted you to do just one thing differently, 
then it's all worthwhile. If you'd like to find out more about our charity, including how you can become a member to support our work and get access to more practical organic growing advice, visit gardenorganic.org.uk. We would love to welcome more people into our growing movement. Thanks to our sponsors, the Organic Gardening Catalogue and to Kevin McLeod for providing the music. That's it. Until next year.